I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. This week, we're getting under the skin of skin. We'll be hearing about a new method to treat burn victims, the electronic tattoo that can tell you if you've got flu, and how we can all keep our skin in good shape. Plus, in the news this week, the diabetes drug that's treating leukaemia, how bird feeders are affecting beak length, and how the challenge of landing space probes now keeps your crisps crunchy. I'm Greer Jackson. I'm Georgia Mills, and you're listening to The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First this week, the announcement from LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. Gravitational waves were first predicted by Einstein. They're ripples in the fabric of space that move at the speed of light and are created by huge events like colliding stars or black holes. Despite the magnitude of these events, Einstein thought it would be impossible to observe them. However, a hundred years later, scientists did find them back in 2015. This week, they announced a fifth detection, but this one is different, and I'm hoping my guest, Astronomer Royal, Professor Martin Rees, is going to tell me why. Hello, Martin. Hello. Why is this detection significant? Well, it's more interesting because, in this case, what was colliding was not two black holes, but two neutron stars. Now, neutron stars are stars that weigh a bit more than the sun, but are only about 10 miles across, so very, very dense and they collide and uh, splash together uh, rather like two black holes do. But when black holes collide, you don't see anything else because a black hole is essentially just much curved space. But when two neutron stars collide, you expect to see a lot of evidence for this collision in other ways, optical light, X-rays, etc. And what's exciting about this event is that they detected the gravitational wave from the merger, but less than two seconds afterwards, a gamma-ray flash was detected from the same object. And since that time, about 70 different observatories have been looking at the afterglow from this event to try to understand what's actually going on in this very complicated physics. And the announcement was made on last Monday... And the lead paper has 3,000 authors, which is, I think, a record, at least for astronomy. And those are the uh, 1,300 authors involved in the LIGO experiment and the gravitational wave experiment called Virgo in Italy, plus also the many hundreds involved in the other observatories, which have looked in all other wave bands for evidence of this follow-up. And they've been observing this object which is in a galaxy about uh, 100 million light-years away for uh, the last couple of months. It was actually detected on August the 17th. And it's lovely that after the Nobels have been awarded for this detection that, that we're now seeing another great breakthrough in this area. You said that there were other types of electromagnetic light, X-rays, gamma rays, that were detected, but we were expecting it to see in a few others and we didn't, like Ice Cube in the Antarctic, for instance. Well, we didn't see neutrinos, and um, what we're trying to do now is to do more detailed calculations to see how surprising it is, because the reason that this is such an interesting event is that we 
only have theoretical ideas as to what happens in the very extreme physics that happens when two of these neutron stars crash together and merge and then collapse into a black hole within a fraction of a second. It's very exotic physics, and only now are we really getting some data which allows us to firm up our ideas. And, as you say, we haven't seen it in neutrinos. Uh, we've seen it in uh, uh, X-rays, and we've seen it in, in light, starting off blue and then getting red. And this is very interesting because there have been some ideas that these colliding neutron stars are very important for something which affects us all on Earth. It's thought that it's events like this that created most of the gold in the universe. Gold is a very heavy uh, atom, of course, and it can't be made by the process in stars that make most of the rest of the periodic table. And so it's been speculated that gold is one of the elements that are made in the, these exotic events. And these events happen about once every 100,000 years in each galaxy, and we are for the first time observing one, and we'll be able to check whether this idea is correct by looking directly at whether the uh, kind of light is what you would expect if it was producing the conditions for the gold to be made. I suppose that explains perhaps why it's so rare and valued here on Earth. Now, I know um, at the initial detection back in 2015 that astronomers claimed that gravitational waves could be used as another window onto the universe, and you, you alluded it to it in your answer there. I wonder, is that the beginning of this, or can we already say something new about the universe that we didn't know before? Well, I think it's important to know that gravitational waves exist because it's been the firmest evidence that Einstein's theory is right even when the, when the gravitational fields are very strong. It's been a great vindication of ideas about gravitational waves and black holes. But this object, I think, that was observed in August is especially interesting because it tells us not just about gravity but about other kinds of physics. It tells us about how atoms and nuclei and magnetic fields behave under these extreme conditions and tells us more about uh, neutron stars. I should say that it's 50 years ago that neutron stars were themselves discovered. They were discovered in Cambridge by Jocelyn Bell, who in July 1967 discovered a very strange beeping radio source in the sky, which was realised within a few months to be a spinning neutron star with a sort of lighthouse beam that passed through our line of sight once every revolution. And that was a pulsar, the first neutron star to be discovered. Since that time, we found thousands of neutron stars, some of them in binary systems, so we have expected that there should be some cases when these binary neutron stars get closer and closer as they use gravitational radiation and then eventually crash together. So this event has been expected. We didn't know how many there would be and it was rather surprising to many people that the first gravitational wave event to be detected was actually two black holes and not two neutron stars. And in a sense, therefore, this was an expected discovery, expected to find these, but it's an amazing technical achievement and it's a contrast to 50 years ago when uh, the discovery of neutron stars themselves was completely unexpected. Well, I guess all that's left to say is congratulations to the 3,000 authors on that astronomical paper and thank you to you, Martin, for coming in and joining us today. Professor Martin Rees from the University of Cambridge and Astronomer Royal. And now some health news. Myeloid leukaemia is an aggressive cancer of the blood system. It prevents myeloid cells from developing into red blood cells or immune cells, which leaves patients anemic, fatigued and prone to infection. 
But this week, scientists at McMaster University in Canada have found an innovative way to attack the cancer by boosting the number of fat cells in the bone marrow. And this is by using a drug that is actually currently being used for diabetes patients. Leading the investigation is Mick Battier, who explained to Michael Wheeler how they found this exciting discovery. There were a lot of cell types in the bone marrow environment. They're made up of, you know, the bone marrow environment's made up of a lot of cells other than blood. And there were particular cell types, specifically fat cells, or called adipocytes, that were decreasing as the disease started to progress and became higher and higher. And in cases where the chemotherapy failed, it looked like those cells were almost completely absent. Once we were convinced of that, we then asked the question, you know, was there a cause and effect relationship between reduced fat and increased leukemia? So their hypothesis was if they could boost the number of fat cells in the bone marrow, that might affect the development of leukemia. They tested the idea using samples of patients' bone marrow in a dish, but they also transplanted patients' bone marrow cells into mice to recreate a human bone marrow environment in another living organism. The team found they were able to boost the number of fat cells in the bone marrow by administering a drug that is currently being used for diabetes. By increasing the fat cells in that bone marrow environment, it actually suppressed the leukemia cells. What we didn't count on was that at the same time of killing the leukemia cells, it turned out we were actually activating the normal blood cells. This is an exciting result, as traditional chemotherapy kills both the leukemia cells and the healthy blood cells. The job of those healthy blood cells is to keep the rest of the body healthy, so losing them can be fatal. Selective impairment of just the leukemia cells seems promising. So how exactly were the leukemia cells affected? So in addition to their numbers, their general function is definitely reduced. And we just don't know mechanistically how this is happening. You know, it wasn't just about, oh, you have 100 cells and you went down to 50. Those 50 cells that are remaining, if you waited long enough, were very debilitated. They were very weak 50 cells. Um, they didn't grow as fast as, as they normally would have. So I, I think it's, it's both the quantity and quality of those leukemic cells. This dual effect on both the number and function of the leukemia cells should, in theory, help prevent the cancer from spreading. So were these mice cured of cancer? We never let the experiments go to the point where we're trying to cure the mice. We're just looking for general effects. We have taken some mice out a little bit longer, meaning we would give them the drug for two weeks, but then we would wait longer and we do have some mice that we didn't report in the, in the paper uh, that actually had no leukemia left at all. You know, whether that is, you know, curing them of leukemia or not, we, you know, we, we, we would only be speculating at this point because it's going to be a very different scenario uh, in patients, which is, I think we're very anxious to go to that next step. So often, promising therapies in animal models fail to make it to the bedside of patients. So what challenges lay ahead for this discovery to make that next step? I think the main challenges we'll probably face will be not much different than other drugs. Um, a drug that's being repurposed, you know, has to be produced by a manufacturer. We have to have some sort of level of sponsorship. Getting the sponsorship, getting the funding, and then getting the organization of all of the nurses and physicians, clinical sites, to be able to bring in the patients in and, you know, do a trial where we've got good numbers and we can draw conclusions. Very promising results there. That work was published in Nature Cell Biology. You're listening to The Naked Scientists. Still to come, we're talking about the birds and the bees, plus we'll be going skin deep. But first, it's crunch time. What happens when the science and technology of space comes down to Earth? 
This is Down to Earth from the Naked Scientists. I'm Dr. Stuart Higgins, and this episode is about a somewhat unusual link between landing space probes and packaging potato crisps. Getting into space is one challenge. Getting back down to Earth again, or say landing on another planet, is a completely different problem altogether. Take, for example, the European Space Agency's Huygens probe. In 2005, this 318kg metal box was dropped from the Cassini spacecraft into the atmosphere of Saturn's moon Titan. In the 2.5 hours that it took the probe to reach the surface of Titan, it had to reduce its speed from over 20,000 km an hour to less than 20 as it touched down on the moon's surface. Most of the slowing down was achieved by the probe's giant heat shield, which made up nearly a third of its total mass. Friction with the nitrogen and methane atmosphere of Titan slowed the probe down to 1.5 times the speed of sound, around 1,850 kilometers per hour, before multiple parachutes were used to slow it down even more. This approach is similar to other spacecraft landing on, say, Mars or Earth. And when the spacecraft is carrying a precious cargo, for example humans, it's critical to understand how it will move through an atmosphere in order to ensure it's engineered strongly enough to withstand the tough conditions. Engineers and scientists achieve this through a mixture of aerodynamic calculations that take into account the spacecraft's speed, the atmosphere it's travelling through, and the mechanical properties of the vehicle itself. They also use wind tunnels to flow air across miniature models to help better understand what will happen. And developing these expertise has huge advantages in other areas too, such as designing more efficient cars and aircraft, and also in a way you might not expect. Food packaging It turns out that being able to predict the descent of a space probe is similar to understanding how potato crisps can be put into bags without breaking. A German company who developed software to simulate the movement of spacecraft through atmospheres was asked to help a food packaging manufacturer to increase the speed of putting crisps into bags. Using their space expertise, they were able to speed things up by 30-50% to without increasing the number of breakages. They use their skills in avoiding big crunches in space to help us enjoy some rather smaller crunches back on Earth. That was Down to Earth from the Naked Scientists, and join me again soon to learn about more space technology that's changing lives back on Earth. Thanks, Stuart. And next time on Down to Earth, Stuart will explain how the technology intended to detect gravitational waves is now also helping scientists to grow better bones. And back here on Earth, scientists at Cambridge University have discovered that plants are some excellent illusionists. They use a trick of the light to give their flowers an attractive blue halo, which might make them more appealing to bees. Pollinating insects like bees see blue-coloured light very well but blue pigments are very hard for plants to make, which is why blue flowers are actually quite rare. But rather than go to the expense of producing blue-coloured chemicals in their petals, many plant species have instead evolved tiny nanoscale wrinkles on the surfaces of their flowers. These wrinkles scatter the blue colours in sunlight, making the flower look blue and potentially more attractive to a bee. Beverly Glover is the director of the Botanic Gardens in Cambridge and one of the authors of the new study. Hi, Beverly. Hi, Georgia. So these blue halos, they're visible to bees, but invisible to us. So how did you even work out they were there? 
Well, they're not always invisible to us. If if the pigment that the flower has underneath the blue halo is is a dark sort of purpley black colour, we can sometimes get a hint of it. And it was looking at a flower like that that first gave us the clue. Then we worked out how to measure the blue halo, so you can record um, this scattered light in the blue and ultraviolet coming off the flower over quite a wide angular range. Um, and then we, we used the collection of plants at the Cambridge Botanic Garden um, and just waded our way through them, measuring flowers that we thought looked possible and had the right sort of ridges on their surface, um, and discovered that actually a surprising number are quite widely dispersed across the flowering plant family tree are doing the same trick. And how do we know this is to attract the bees? Well, we don't know yet that that's what it is for, but it's an obvious hypothesis, an obvious idea, because that's what flowers are all about. They're all about attracting um, animals to pollinate them, and the petals particularly are really just there as an advertising tool. And so we did some experiments where we made artificial surfaces that could make the same blue halo, and we asked bumblebees in our lab setup whether they could see the blue halo, even if we couldn't, and they certainly could. And then we just used those flowers and asked how long it took them to find them and we found that having the blue halo made the flowers stand out much more to the bees and they were much quicker finding them so that all adds up to the idea that probably they're involved in attracting the bees but we'd like to get out there in the wild and test that there too oh right so yeah there's um the blue makes it more easy for the bee to find it which helps them when they're foraging and then helps the flower because they're more likely to get pollinated Exactly. So flying bees are having quite a hard time energetically. Anything that makes it easier for them to find flowers, get hold of the sugar quickly and move on to the next one has to be a good thing. And of course, anything that's a good thing for the bee and is going to make the flower more attractive is good for the flower too. And you mentioned this trait was found in quite a lot of plant species. Is it that they all, one plant had this great idea many years ago and they all evolved from it? No, so that was the surprising thing. When I say quite a lot, it's not very common. Most flowers don't have it. Um, There are obviously hundreds of thousands of flowering plant species. But what we found was that there are flowers in all of the major groups of the, the flowering plant family that have it, in widely dispersed families. And what that tells us is that it probably evolved convergently multiple times. It's not there in the oldest flowering plants that we still have alive today but it's there in scattered species in all the other groups and so we think it's probably repeatedly or convergently evolving. Oh wow so all of these different lines of plants have separately worked out this I guess this trick (laughs) to make themselves look blue when they're not actually blue. Yeah and and I think that's probably not that surprising because all they really have to do is work out how to produce a, a ridged effect on their surface out of their cuticle. All plants have a cuticle it protects them from drying out and so probably it's not that surprising that more than one plant's come up with the idea of of, of folding that cuticle up if that gives you a a really good blue effect. If quite a lot of them have managed to do it and it's uh, supposedly an advantage, why do we think they all don't do it? (laughs) Well, that's one of the great mysteries of evolution, isn't it? (laughs) I could really use wings some days. I think about flowers as as all trying to stand out against uh, a green background. They're all shouting at the pollinators, look at me, I'm over here, come and pollinate me. And there are hundreds of thousands of different ways of doing that. You can do it by being blue or by being sparkly or by being yellow or by having patterns on you or by smelling nice and I guess uh, some of them have come up with a blue halo idea but others have got other ideas too. And is it really that hard to make blue pigment that the the plants have had to invent this other way of looking blue? Yes, it really is. It's surprising, isn't it? Um, If you think about cut flowers that you might buy for the house or garden flowers, um, it's very hard to get a true blue. You come up with something like cornflower or Himalayan mountain poppy. There aren't many species that do it. And that's because the main pigment that plants use for colour is a a molecule called anthocyanin. And anthocyanin comes in a sort of red, pink, purple range. To make it look blue, um, you have to first of all add extra hydroxyl groups to the molecule, and not many plants have the right enzymes to do that. 
And even then, that gives you a kind of purpley colour. To make it properly blue, you need to put it at a, an alkaline pH. So you need to change the pH of the, the vacuole in the cell where the pigment's sitting um, to get that true blue effect. And that's really difficult to do. That involves pumping ions across the cell membrane. Um, and not many plants have come up with the ability to do it, which, of course, is why you can't buy blue roses in the garden centre. Of course, unless the ones that have been dyed. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, so, so what's next? Are you, are you going to try and find out if, if it really does confer this advantage in the wild? Uh, we'd like to do that, but to do that I need a line of flowers um, that doesn't make it, that's otherwise identical to a line of flowers that does make it. I don't want to compare you know, two different species, one with and without, because that'll, that'll have lots of other confounding effects involved. So we're working on, at the moment, the really exciting question of how you develop um, this structure, how the flower actually manages to control the, the patterning of its surface cuticle in a way that you get these ridges and you get this colour effect. And of course, in the process of working that out, we're likely to generate mutants that don't do it because we're using a genetic approach. So once we've got a nice mutant that doesn't do it, then certainly we'll be out there in the field seeing what happens. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Beverly Glover from the University of Cambridge. And that study has just come out in the journal Nature. We've talked about the bees and now it's time for the birds. Scientists across Europe have been studying the evolution of the great tit. Over time, animals evolved to have features that are most suited to the environment, which in turn makes them more likely to survive and reproduce. This process is known as natural selection. And believe it or not, it's happening in your back garden. Researchers have found that the UK great tits have evolved to have longer beaks than their European relatives. How? Well, us Brits are rather fond of our bird feeders, and so the great tits have evolved to have longer beaks to get into their grub. Izzy Clark spoke to Lewis Spurgeon from the University of East Anglia about what these birds look like. Now, the great tit's a small, colourful bird that you're very likely to see in your garden. It's found all across Europe. And scientists in Oxford and the Netherlands and other places have been studying the biology and ecology of this species for decades and we didn't just want to look at how natural selection works at the DNA level. We wanted to do that and then link the genetic differences that we saw to actual physical differences among individuals and populations. OK, so what exactly did you find? In a nutshell, we were able to show using DNA that there's been really recent and rapid selection for longer beaks, specifically in, in British great tits. We showed that if you're a British great tit and you've got gene variants that code for a longer beak, you're likely to fledge more offspring. And we found this intriguing correlation between beak length uh, in the UK and how often birds visit bird feeders. So this led us to speculate that the widespread use of bird feeders in the UK might have resulted in natural selection for the longer beaks that we see in British great tits compared to their counterparts in, in mainland Europe. So the, the British great tits are a little bit more greedy, shall we say? Yeah, that, that's possible. So how exactly do you go about collecting all of this information from the UK great tits compared to these ones in the Netherlands? We start off by catching birds and taking a small sample, either from a feather or a small blood sample, which doesn't harm them. And from that, we can extract their DNA. And using that, we can use statistics to compare the DNA of the UK and the Dutch populations. And we can look for genes that are involved in natural selection. The most significant one that we found was a, a gene called COL4A5, which is a gene that produces collagen. And then what we can do is we can look at what these genes do in order to say something about how selection produces differences among individuals and populations. 
Using that approach, we found that the genes under natural selection between our UK and our Dutch great tips were involved in controlling face shape. We also find evidence of, a, of one of the genes that is also associated with beak shape variation in Darwin's finches. So this was what led us to think that perhaps these genes might be involved in controlling beak variation in birds. And when we looked at that statistically, we showed that that was the case. Over what period are we talking about? Because we have this idea that natural selection and evolution takes quite a long time. So how long has this process been going on? Natural selection can take quite a long time, but it can also be quite rapid. Uh, we actually have a long-term study of great tits in White and Woods uh, run by Oxford University. And they've been measuring beaks in great tits for a really long time in White and Woods. And actually, if we take great tits from the 1970s through to today, over that period of time, we can actually measure an observable increase in beak length. But probably this has been over the last couple of hundred years or so, this, this natural selection. So that's one of the striking things about the study is that it's an example of really quite rapid and, and recent natural selection. Now, what does this tell us to have this longer beak for these UK great tits? Well, in the sense that the birds with longer beaks, or at least the birds with the genetic variation for longer beaks, are able to fledge more offspring. So in that sense, if you are able to fledge more offspring, then more of your genetic descendants can be recruited into the breeding population and you're going to evolutionarily be more successful. Even small differences in your survival and your reproduction can make a big effect overall on, on variation in a population. I think what we really need to get at next is what, what exactly is the cause. And so I think we'd like to follow up on this bird feeder link and think about what, how and where might bird feeders be driving differences between British and mainland European populations? Does this occur for other species? And what are the consequences of removing that selection pressure? And mechanistically, how does that work? So there's lots of interesting things that we can look into there. Lewis Spurgeon from the University of East Anglia, and that study was published in the journal Science this week. You are listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills, and with Greya Jackson. And appropriately for The Naked Scientist, the subject of this week's show is skin. Coming up, the new material that's helping burn victims, plus a history of getting inked. And we'll also be looking at the future of using electronic tattoos to monitor our health. But before all that, we're joined by a dermatologist, Dr Jane Sterling from Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge, to go further than just skin deep. Hello, Jane. Hello. I'm wondering if we can start off, what exactly is skin? Well, skin is, uh, is a wonderful part of the body that works 24-7 to keep us together and working well. It's a multi-layered surface. So there's an outside layer, the epidermis, that keeps changing every day, keeps renewing itself. And then below that is the dermis, which gives the skin stretch and strength. And that enables us to move around without the skin splitting every time we bend an elbow or kneel down. There's a layer below that as well, isn't there? Yes, there's the subcutis, uh, and that's where the fat is found. So if you put on a bit of weight and gain some fat, that all sits down in the subcutis and gives the skin extra padding and softness. <laughs> I'm sure, which we're all conscious of as it's coming through to winter. Um, and if I got a cut or something on my hand, how exactly does the skin grow and, and repair itself? 
Well, it starts immediately. If you cut yourself with a knife, for instance, what you'll see, of course, is bleeding and that then clots and solidifies. And as soon as that happens, the skin is activated to uh, start repairing itself and new cells come in and start to repair the base of that cut and gradually over time strength comes to it and then finally the epidermis comes over after a few days and kind of seals the gap. But if you have a deep cut, like after an operation scar, then that takes a few weeks to a couple of months to actually regain its full strength. And that's why they always tell you not to do anything too vigorous after you've had an operation so you don't stretch the scar. Mm. And skin is regenerating all the time, isn't it? It's not just when you have a cut or, or, or anything. No, the surface of the skin's always peeling off. You know, if you get sunburn or something like that, you do see the skin peeling off. But all the time we're losing cells from the surface of the skin. And in fact, most of the dust in the house where we live is made up of skin cells that have dropped off our surface and have just accumulated in the corners. But it's a very good system because obviously we're rubbing into things and clothes rub the surface of our skin gradually. So the fact that it can uh, repair itself from below is essential. Otherwise, we'd just all be worn away. And how quickly does that regeneration or that process, how long does that take? Well, it's, it's thought that new skin cells that are made only just a millimetre below the surface, that's at the base of the epidermis, they take about a month to go from the base of the epidermis up to the surface. If you're younger, they move a bit quicker. And like everything else, when you're older, they move a bit slower. And I'm thinking of common skin conditions, psoriasis is one that comes to mind. How does that compare to someone when we're talking about regeneration who, who doesn't have it? Yes, psoriasis is a fairly common skin disorder, usually seen with red flaky patches, particularly on the knees and elbows. And in those patches, the skin is turning over much quicker. The epidermis is turning over quicker. So it takes just about a week for the whole epidermis in those affected areas to renew itself. And of course, if skin's turning over quicker, it, it doesn't make itself quite so perfectly. And that's why the surface is, is much more obviously flaky and pulls away from the skin quicker. Thank you, Jane. And if you want to know how to keep your skin healthy, keep listening because Jane will be back later on in the programme. Now, one thing that's been hitting the headlines in recent months is the rise of acid attacks, where corrosive substances have been thrown at people, causing severe damage to the skin and scarring. Dr Stuart Brown is a scientist from the Restoration of Appearance and Function Trust and he joins us now. He's part of a team that has developed a new material that could change how we treat acid attack and burn patients. So to start with, what happens to the skin if it has suffered a burn? Well, where you've got a burn or an acid attack, you've really got a very serious injury to the skin. Often it's very deep into the dermis and those sort of things don't heal very well on their own. So you need to have a surgical intervention, but... You've got a problem where you've got a massive fused sort of glob of protein that the body doesn't know to break down or get rid of. So the surgeon has to come along to take that off in order to let a normal wound healing process go ahead. Mm, so burns can be extremely devastating. So what is the current method to treat them? Well, the reconstructive surgery would really use skin grafts often. When you look at an acid attack, it's obviously on exposed areas of the skin. So it's very important to have a good sort of functional outcome where the, the skin is flexible and is, has the best appearance that you can as well. The skin graft is the normal way that they go, which is the best current technology but can definitely be improved upon. Is that where you take skin from one part of the body and then move it? From the same patient, yeah. So you're essentially displacing the wound to an area where you think will heal better and you're trying to give the original wound 
basically a, a sort of a, a new patch in a way. Oh wow! So it's quite um quite a considerable treatment then. So what what have you come up with then that's different? Well, not just me alone, but <laughs> <laughs> it's been in in, in a development for about ten years. But um, we've come up with a product called Smart Matrix, and it's basically a dermal scaffold. It's a product which is like a structure for the skin to have a normal wound healing process upon. And we've developed it with the aim of having the best sort of functional and aesthetic appearance at the end. We're quite excited about it because we think we'll be able to take away the graft that is the current practice and actually just do better than the graft in a way. Okay, so it's a it's a scaffolding, I'm guessing a very small scaffolding that goes upon the affected area. It's almost like a sponge. So it's got a very specific composition and it's got a very specific structure. And both of those things are very important for the way that the body reacts to it. So it's actually made from fibrin, which is a product um, that's created from fibrinogen. When you get cut, as we were saying earlier, your blood stops. And it stops because a fibrin plug is created from fibrinogen in the blood, which is just floats around in your blood all the time. This fibrin plug has got a very different sort of structure to what we've done. So we've taken that fibrin plug and we've sort of spread it out and we've put lots of little holes in it. And what that lets us do is it lets things colonise that a lot better so the wound healing response can go a bit better. And it's much better at getting a blood supply and that's absolutely critical for a good wound healing outcome. And I can see you've got um, a, a packet of it. It's called Smart Matrix on the table here. So let's have a, have a look. I've got some here and it looks like um, candy floss that's been flattened, <laughs> I suppose. So it's a very porous material. There's very little protein, a lot of air there. We want something very light that the body will embrace quite well and that it can send cells through very well. That's part of the thing. You can put it in the wound and it'll break down and disappear. You don't have to go back in and take it out. But as it breaks down, it sends out information. It sends out a signal to attract a blood supply as well. So we can have cells grown into it. It will send out signals to encourage the blood supply and we can have the, the best wound healing outcome that we can. Oh, wow. And we heard earlier that these um, acid attacks and burns are obviously massive problems for people. So how far are we along in this in this sort of getting out to people? We've been through one clinical trial and we're doing another one next year. And it's the one next year that we're, we're doing it without the graft. So we think within a couple of years it could be in the hands of surgeon and it should give them a wider repertoire to pick up from more treatments that would then be suitable for, for these very challenging wounds like acid attacks. Right, and you mentioned earlier that skin grafts, they, they need to take skin from another part of the already probably quite traumatised person yeah. and move it around. Are there any other benefits to using this new method? Sure. I mean, it really comes down to skin grafts themselves. There are certain bad things associated with them it's just really the contraction, the, the risk of them failing as well. This this can't fail because it's human protein. The body does not react to it in the way that it reacts to a graft that, that's failing. Have we seen any side effects from the um, the fibrin um, as it breaks down in the, in the body? No, nothing. No, it's been nothing. fine. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Stuart. I wish you luck with that project. That's uh, Stuart Brown from the Restoration of Appearance and Function Trust. Now, our skin is an important barrier against infections, but there are also lots of microbes that make it their home. While most of them are harmless or even useful, sometimes something unexpected can hide away there, like sleeping sickness. It's a disease that affects 60 million people in rural parts of East, West and Central Africa. It's caused by parasites that get into your skin and blood system. If left untreated, sleeping sickness severely damages the nervous systems and can even be fatal. Efforts to eliminate it haven't been going as well as hoped, but could it be because we've been ignoring the skin's important role in transmission? Izzy Clark spoke to Annette McLeod from the University of Glasgow, who's working to improve the diagnosis technique. 
the disease is transmitted by taxi fly. So when the taxi fly comes to take a blood meal, it uh, bites your skin. They make a bit of a mess of the skin and they suck on the pool of blood and lymph that collects at the bite site. And that's when they inject the parasites and that's how you get infected. So how is this normally diagnosed? Well, up until very recently, it was always thought that, that sleeping sickness was a blood disease. And so you would diagnose that by looking in people's blood. But what we have discovered is that the parasites are also in the skin. And in fact, that some people don't have any parasites in their blood or very few, so you cannot detect them. But they can have quite a lot of parasites in their skin. So these individuals are not diagnosed, but they could contribute to transmission when a taxi fly comes to bite you. So if these parasites, they're, they're residing in the skin, so a blood test may not actually be the best way forward. Is that right? That's right. So there's a, a, a significant proportion of people that have antibodies to the parasites, but we couldn't find any parasites in their blood. And these individuals were not treated and kind of ignored. But actually, we believe now that these individuals have got an infection and they are important in terms of disease transmission. And they could actually be hindering the WHO's programme to eliminate the disease. Because if you have people that are transmitting the disease but seem to be relatively healthy, they can keep spreading the disease and it's very difficult then to eliminate it. So what we want to do is identify these individuals um, so we can treat them and then hopefully eliminate the disease that way. So if we can't use blood tests to sort of find out who's been affected by this parasite how can we get around that problem well we've been trying to develop with our collaborators from Strathclyde University Duncan Graham to develop a non-invasive handheld tool that will detect the trypanosomes under the skin so this is based on Raman technology so basically you shine a laser on somebody's skin and you can hopefully detect the parasites that are under there. You can see a difference in the Raman signal that you get from infected skin versus uninfected skin. And the trypanosomes have a unique signal. And so we can focus in on that signal and say, oh, yes, this person's infected. So that's the idea. And that's what we're trying to develop. And we tested a sort of prototype of this in Guinea a couple of months ago. And it's by no means perfect, but it's very promising. I think uh, we can develop it further. So is there any way that once you've found out that there is this infection, that it can be treated Yes, so you can treat um, the disease um, with drugs that are free from the WHO, but you have to be hospitalised for about two weeks. And that's part of the reason why um, people with latent infections are not generally treated. So you only treat people that you've seen parasites in their blood. That is the current WHO standard. Why is it important to investigate this so thoroughly? It's holding up the elimination programme. So what's happened previously is that the number of cases of sleeping sickness had come right down in the 1960s. And then we took our eye off the ball and then the disease re-emerged. And we got lots of cases, up to 300,000 cases in the 1980s. So now we're back getting the disease under control. But we have to understand how the disease re-emerges 
And so we think it's these individuals that don't have any symptoms, but they're carrying the disease and they are seeding the next epidemic. So we need to stamp that out. I mean, how long can this last in the system? Yeah, we had a, we were involved in this very interesting case of somebody who was from Africa, from Sierra Leone, and he came to this country uh, 29 years ago and then came down with sleeping sickness. So he was fine for 29 years. And then he was treated with immunosuppressants for an unrelated disease, and he came down with sleeping sickness. So he was able to control the disease for all that time. And if you are able to improve this method, can it be used for anything else? Well, yes. This technology has been used to identify skin cancer, for example, even to detect fake whiskey. <laughs> in whiskey bottles <laughs> so it's got lots of applications when you go to the airport and they scan your bag with a little cloth and then put it in the machine that's ramen that they're detecting to see if you've got cocaine or explosives but we could also use this technology to look at other vector-borne diseases that have a skin component like uh, onchocerciasis for example where we know the parasites are in the skin so I think it's got lots of potential. Definitely some work to watch there. That was Annette McLeod from the University of Glasgow. Now, we couldn't talk about skin without mentioning the ancient practice that is still very much popular today, and that's the art of tattoos. Like them or loathe them, we've been using our skin as a canvas for thousands of years. And in the studio with us is a tattoo art historian. That's Dr Matt Lodder from the University of Essex. Hi, Matt. Hello. So first off, tattoos. How does it actually work when you go and get one? The biomechanics of tattooing is quite straightforward. It's simply the insertion of ink particles into the dermal layer of your skin. So we heard about that earlier on. And it's essentially an immune response as your body's trying to remove this strange foreign body. It sends cells called microphage, which try and remove the particles, but the particles are too big for your immune system to remove. So they just sit there encompassed in this um, immune cell and doesn't go anywhere for the rest of your life. Well, I suppose they're deep down enough that the the layer isn't shed off. Absolutely. So there's a bit of movement over your life, but not a huge amount. Yeah, you see sometimes they (laughs) get a bit stretchy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A bit blurred. (laughs) So... I was surprised to hear this isn't a modern practice. This has been going on for a long time. So what's the oldest evidence we have of a tattoo? So we can infer tattooing through things like anthropomorphic sculpture back to the Neolithic. But the earliest evidence we have of an actual piece of preserved tattooed skin was dug up in the Austro-Italian Alps in the early 90s. And it dates back to about five and a half thousand years ago. So three and a half thousand years BCE. So, yeah, essentially we think tattooing is about as old as humanity, but three and a half thousand years before before the common era is about as old as we can go. I'm trying to imagine what a tattoo from 5,000 years ago would look like. What what, what was it? So the, this specimen is called Otzi, Otzi the Iceman, and he's got kind of little crosses and tally marks on various sites of his body, on his ankles, his knees, his wrists and his stomach. And it, it's thought, although we can, can't prove this, but it's inferred that they're somehow kind of magical or medicinal because the tattoos are found on sites where there's signs of things like arthritis and, and other kinds of injury. So perhaps perhaps they were magical or, or intended as medicinal in some way. Oh, right. And I suppose looking back through history, do tattoos always seem to sort of fulfil the same roles? Are all cultures using them? So we find tattooing or other kind of skin marking in pretty much every culture we've ever encountered, but the uses vary. Often they're decorative, sometimes they're symbolic and ritual, other times perhaps they're magical or or, um, or intended for some medicinal purpose, yeah. Oh, wow. And how, how were these tattoos being done all this time ago? Do we know? Well, 
Honestly, we don't know, but to make a tattoo, you really just need a sharp stick and some ink uh, or a sharp needle of some kind. <laughs> so we find kind of the very, very basic poking type of tattoo um, across the world, and that's the needle made from bone or from um, literally sharpened sticks. So in some cultures, you find really interesting practices. So in um, Inuit tattooing in, in North America, for example, um, tattooing was made by sewing sinew of caribou coated in ink through the skin, and which produces a really particular kind of dot-dash kind of pattern. Oh, <laughs> people really suffer for their art then. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think it was very, um, uh, very pleasant. And the modern technique, it's uh, thankfully not being sewed through with caribou. No. <laughs> so how did that I get mean, developed? I mean, you can still get that done. There are still really? friends of mine who still do that on people if you want that. But um, wow. <laughs> the yeah, the modern tattoo machine is uh, a kind of invention of the Victorian era, really. It comes with the era of the you know, novel electric device. In fact, the first ever handheld electric device, which was a machine for filling dental cavities, um, very, very quickly got turned into a tattoo machine in the um, 1880s and 90s. And looking back through history, what's your what's your favourite example of, of tattoo use? How people are, are like um, using tattoos on their body? Oh, I'm I'm an art historian, so I kind of like seeing the things people are copying. So in the Victorian era, which I'm I'm really enamoured with, you find people getting these amazing, beautiful copies of their favourite paintings, huge back pieces done over the course of you know several kind of days. Probably also wouldn't have been very pleasant, but the tattooists in the Victorian period used to inject cocaine as anaesthetic. Thank you very much, Matt. That's Matt Lodder from Essex University. Thanks. Now, that's tattoos as we know them. But what will they look like in the future? Worldwide, teams are developing electronic skin and e-tattoos. These are flexible materials that can sit on our skin and keep an eye on our health. Jenan Bao from Stanford University is an expert in the field. What we're trying to do is to make the future of wearable electronics. The future of wearables are going to be soft, stretchable, and bendable, like our skin. It can look like a tattoo that could be temporary, and they can uh, sense different parameters uh, from blood pressure, heart rate, temperature, or in the future, even chemical signals. Picture a rub-on tattoo with tiny patches of electronics, an e-tattoo, if you will. You could place it on your body and directly measure what's going on in there. Your blood pressure, your temperature, heart rate, or even get a peek at your immune system. The combination of information can be used to potentially predict the onset of certain disease. For example, one of my colleagues at Stanford uh, did a study. He was able to predict the onset of flu even before the patient start to feel the symptom of flu. Pretty handy. And in the future, soft electronics could even be placed under our skin, giving the sensor more access to information linked to our hormones, which could help monitor depression or things like blood sugar levels. And getting a little bit big brother, some companies have even planted these chips under their employees' skin to act as access cards and open doors. But skin, unlike most electronic equipment, is stretchy. So for e-tattoos to work, they need to be built a little bit differently. We use uh, soft plastic material and through molecular engineering, we make such plastic into electronic materials so that they not only can conduct electricity, but also at the same time, they're as soft as our skin and potentially can even self-heal as our skin. 
Genen is even exploring the possibility of creating flexible batteries to match these stretchy electronic circuits. But there are still a few different challenges to overcome. The tattoos or the uh, patches will transmit information wirelessly. We need to make sure they are secure so that the information about the person will not be hacked. In that case, the, the patient needs to be able to control who can view the information, who they want to share the information with. In order for e-skin to be widely spread, we need to address both technological issues and security issues. That was Jen and Bao there. So what do you think, Ray? Would you get an e-tattoo? Well, I kind of like the idea of being able to predict the onset of flu and... I could even slightly, although it's slightly like being a dog, you know, being chipped or something, <laughs> but I could even get on board with that if I could, you know, get on the train and tap in rather than buy a ticket. It was only when Jenin said about wirelessly transmitting data that I suddenly thought, hang on a minute here, I'm not entirely convinced I want someone to know my movements throughout my Saturday or, or any day, actually, for that matter. <laughs> but especially Saturday. <laughs> but especially Saturday. Who knows what I get up to? How about you, Matt? As someone with a lot of tattoos yourself, would you get an e-tattoo? I'm just much more into the old school ones. Give me a, give me a sharp stick and a bit of carbon any day. <laughs> Keeping it old school, lovely. It's almost the end of the programme now, but before we finish, Jane, we've talked a lot about skin today, so what can we all do to keep our skin in good condition? Well, the skin itself does a pretty good job of keeping itself healthy, so we don't need to do too much. So we need just to make sure that we're keeping ourselves fresh and clean, I guess, by washing. But that is something we tend to do a bit too much of in modern society. Overwashing or too much detergent or too much exfoliation can in some ways be bad for the skin. And it is important as you get older to use a little bit more moisturiser because our grease glands stop working as we get older. So those two things are important. And in the long term, best not to have too much sun. Right, because I know moisturiser is one of those things. It's a it's a multi-million dollar industry. Multi-million, yes. And you wonder, is the science behind it legitimate? Of course, very expensive skin creams contain all sorts of wonderful ingredients. However, probably the most important ingredient is some sort of oily, greasy thing that will actually just produce some barrier function on the skin. I um, I recently tried a face mask that made me look like a ghost. It was like ectoplasm. It was <laughs> Sounds very like bizarre. a perfect one for Halloween. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. It's got a use then. Yes. And how about the food we eat? Is there something we can do in our diet? Well, probably as, lo- as long as we eat a well-balanced diet, nothing special. Certainly if you're low on the various vitamins, it can make your skin look not so healthy or doesn't heal so well. But a well-balanced diet with vitamins and minerals is all we need. Brilliant. Glad to hear it. So thank you so much, Jane. And thank you to all our guests this week, Stuart Brown, Annette McLeod, Matt Lodder and Jen and Bao. Now we've just about got time for question of the week. And Stevie Bain has dialed in to this question from Jason. Our new house is 140 metres from a cell phone tower. As a family, the three of us feel like we have been affected to different degrees in terms of sleep, motivation and anxiety, which are commonly reported symptoms of exposure to microwave radiation. It's a controversial topic, but are there any major health risks with living close to a phone tower? Smartphone technology has transformed our lives in so many ways. But with the proliferation of base stations to serve our ever-increasing hunger for data, there have been understandable concerns over the safety of exposure to microwave radiation. So should we be concerned? 
we put the question to our listeners on the forum. Evan thinks that, ironically, there are fewer risks living closer to a tower because the antenna are mounted on a high point and emit radiation horizontally. Cyphrum points out the more practical dangers, saying that the only danger warning he has seen on a tower said don't stand too close in winter as large icicles fall off. But what do the experts think? We asked Tony Kent, Professor of Physics at the University of Nottingham, to shed some light on the situation. Although the word radiation is common, there are different types of radiation that affect the body in different ways. Examples being microwaves and nuclear radiation. The main hazard from microwave radiation, the kind which is emitted from phones and base stations, is heating due to the microwave shaking the molecules, which is put to good use in a microwave oven. The International Commission on Non-Ionising Radiation Protection put an upper limit of 80 milliwatts on the amount of microwave radiation per kilogram that a member of the public should be exposed to, known as the Specific Absorption Rate, SAR, which includes a safety margin of error. So how exactly does the level of radiation in our microwave ovens compare to those emitted from a phone tower? If you could squeeze yourself into a microwave oven, close the door and turn it on from the inside, you will absorb about one kilowatt of microwave radiation, which is about 200 times greater than the SAR, and not surprisingly, you would cook yourself slowly. The mobile phone mast radiates typically 100 watts. This is emitted in all directions horizontally and hits the ground about 50 metres from the mast. The exact amount of radiation you would intercept at a distance of 140 metres from the mast depends on the details of the antenna radiation pattern, but a worst-case estimate would be about 100 microwatts per kilogram, well below the SAR limit and actually much less than from using your own phone, which is also well below the SAR. Thanks, Tony, for tapping into that topic. Next week, we're summoning a solution to this spooky Halloween head-scratcher. In the 1940s, there was a chicken that survived 18 months without a head. How long could a human survive without a head? Do you think you know the answer to this spooky summoning? Then email chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or join in the debate on the forum. That's nakedscientists.com slash forum. And that brings us to the end of the programme. Thank you to Izzy Clark for production. Join us next time for our Halloween special as we focus on Hocus Pocus. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Georgia Mills and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.